0: Welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay Podcast. I'm your host Chris Desmond and this is a show where I sit down and have a chat with interesting people doing amazing things who inspire me and hopefully you to get out of our comfort zones through their actions and their their ideas. Today is episode number 58. And a couple of months ago, I had the good fortune of striking up a conversation while waiting in line to get into a conference. The guy that I was talking to was called Tommy Maharaj, and he pointed me in the direction of a young guy called Noah Wolof as someone to have a podcast conversation with. Now, that went well. Noah and I had a chat back in episode 52 of the podcast that some of you guys may have listened to if you haven't make sure that you go back and have a listen to that one after this. But what came of that as well is that Noah told me that I needed to get Tommy onto the show uh, and hear his inspiring story as well. Tommy and I managed to have a chat and create a podcast episode down at Biz Dojo in Wellington last week. Um, There is a little bit of, uh, of background noise and that is people just, going about creating amazing things down at Biz Dojo. Uh, I don't think it particularly gets in the way of our conversation at all. Uh, but yeah, you'll you'll hear a couple of coffees being made as well. Tommy is a young guy full of passion and enthusiasm for life and for helping people. Whether that's through his role at Inspiring Stories uh, or as the founder of Millennials, the social enterprise recruitment agency helping young Kiwis, or just in his general day-to-day life. Tommy's also the survivor of a brain tumour, and he graciously shared his experience of this with me. And going through this experience really cemented the three values that are important for him to live by. So it's a vulnerable conversation with bits of levity, a lot of emotion, and almost some tears from both Tommy and myself. We talk about starting and growing a movement, creating safe spaces to share, using your own challenges to help leverage others up, the dichotomy of trying something that you're curious about and realizing you're not into it, and seeing things through to the end, building and inspiring the possibilities of young New Zealanders, and leaving a legacy that you can be proud of. There's a lot of information in this conversation with Tommy. Uh, but I barely scratched the surface. So I'm going to need to have some more chats with him. Remember, if you get something out of the conversation and if you, or if you enjoy it, make sure to share it out with your friends. But thank you for getting uncomfortable with me and Tommy today. Is OK podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me, man. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure, mate. This is uh, kind of my first time up in Biz Dojo as well. It's it's a great place. place. It is a
1: great place. Field of inspiration, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: You guys, (laughs) like, there must be days where just the energy is amazing people bouncing off each other oh totally
1: man community breakfast coming on on a friday morning or thursday morning and sometimes we've got community breakfast going down and got the whole crew together having breakfast and nice 200 of us so it's a a (laughs) pretty cool
0: great start to the day mate. totally um so i guess uh, probably a good starting point is to have just a little bit of a chat about about your background where you're from kind of where where you grew up
1: yeah totally man so um Background, well, I'm from Wellington, New Zealand, which is an awesome place to be, of course. Yeah. I uh, spent my childhood growing up in Auckland, moved back here at about the age of 10 when my parents separated and, and been in Wellington ever since. So, really cool place and live out in the Hutt Valley.
0: Awesome. Yeah. No, oh, I, I'm slightly biased, but uh, I love Wellington as well. It's a, <laughs> it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic place, mate. Definitely. Um, there's a couple of things that I wanted to have a chat with you about today, but I mean, I think kind of if we work it sort of in a just a, basically a timeline kind of fashion. Still um, before we started re- t- uh, recording, you were talking about a, a project that you set up at high school, um, working with with young guys. Totally. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Kind of give me a, a little bit of an overview of it.
1: Yeah. So. This goes back many years now, um, but just in my last year of high school at the age of 17, started my first sort of project, which was called Freedom, just about helping young Kiwi males make better and more accurate decisions, uh, the focus on where you're going rather than where you've been. Um, so we started with about seven young guys in a, in a small room, and the principal would actually give us his office at lunchtime, which was pretty pretty cool, pretty good one. Um, and we'd have a small group of guys, and we'd just talk about some of the biggest problems in our life and just making sure we created that safe space for them um, and looking at, I guess you could say, ensuring that they felt comfortable to share some of the biggest challenges in their life. Um, yeah, and, and from there, we, we grew up from seven young people in a small room at the start of the year to mid-year moving into the chapel and having about 50 young people there every Thursday and at lunchtime, and by the end of the year, having about 200 young people that had come across their freedom sessions, so... Yeah, really um, cool.
0: Fantastic. What school was that at, mate? St. Bernard's College. St. Bernard's? Cool, yeah. cool. Now, I want I to dive into that a little bit more <laughs> with you. What, what was kind of the initial spark? What was the motivation to start this off? Like why, did you, why did you think it was necessary?
1: Yeah, totally. So, when I was 13 or 15, um, I had some pretty rough things happen in my life, um, dealing with problems like alcohol at such a young age and being quite addicted to it myself. Um, you know, problems with feeling really lonely, uh, thoughts of suicide. And by the age of 18, I'd come out of this really rough stage in my life. um, And I had this thought that if I felt that way at 15, and there's definitely other young guys who felt this way too. And what would it take to change that so that nobody actually within my school or my proximity or or young people that I associate with every day, I mean, what's going to stop them from having to go through the same thing? Um, So for me, freedom was catalyst from that
0: yeah yeah how did how did you get out of that from that that period of of 13 to 15 to 18
1: so I looked around me at the age of about 17 and I think the most important thing for young people is just to have good role models in their life Mm -hmm. and surrounding them and for me I found myself at the age of 17 just sort of changing uh, social groups and find myself around some really good role models yeah um family it started to sort itself out a bit more, it's a bit more stable. And with that being said, I think, you know, if you have good role models in your life it can make a big difference. Mm. So yeah. what does it take to give people a role model?
0: Yeah. Was that a conscious decision that you made to seek out uh, new role models or was that something that just kind of naturally evolved for you at the time, do you think?
1: Something that naturally evolved, I think, rather mm-hmm. than something that I sort of went out and, and seeked. I'm um, just naturally as I got older attracted to attract different people. With, um, with with different sort of viewpoints on life, and, yeah, yeah, it was cool,
0: cool, cool. So bringing it bringing it back to freedom, um, yep, that that was the motivation for it. How did it start off, actually? Like the the logistics of it.
1: <laughs> totally. Um, I was. I, I met a young guy in the school who was fourteen and addicted to drugs and um, just wanted to have a, a chat with him about some of the some of the biggest things in his life and, and what sort of got him into it. Um, and by doing that, we just started meeting up within our re-periods and talking about um, some of the changes he could make in his life. And then by doing that, it's, you just looked around, and, and there was more, more and more young guys just suffering from similar things. I mean, not drugs, but but big issues in their life. Um, so that was a catalyst for it, and, and just thinking what would it take to make a difference for that. hmm
0: so you you started meeting with this this one guy and then it just basically yeah it, it grew <laughs> it grew, it grew and yeah.
1: just seeing the changes that that happened in his life over that year was amazing um, and after about a couple of months just mentoring and working with him and and just going on on long walks and talking about the big 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 struggles in his life yeah just yeah just catalyzed okay. from that and
0: yeah so it was kind of one on one to start with and was there like a tipping point that you reached that you thought actually why don't we do this with, why don't I do this with more people?
1: Yeah, so there was other young people that not just myself, but also this other young student knew about too. Um, So just approached them to join us um, and just a small discussion to talk about some of the problems. And if we could have like a little brotherhood group, that'd be great. Um, And then took it to our principal, who was amazing at the time. His name was Peter Farber. And, you know, he actually gave me his office during lunchtimes. Um, Yeah which is amazing, and and we would all sit in the principal's office, which was pretty cool, Mm. Um, with a group of us, and and just talk about some of the problems that we're going through and and just how do we get out of it.
0: Yeah. Did you, when you were kind of kicking that off, did you have any uh, sort of reservations or any trepidation around beginning it?
1: No, it was a a natural thought, you know, like I had been through a lot and I didn't want anyone else to suffer or go through the same thing and what would it take to change that?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, kind of speaking, speaking from experience, speaking, speaking from, from experience. your your story with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Very cool. So that was that was kind of your, your final year of high school. Yep. Did that? Um, did the program kind of continue on after after you headed away from school?
1: Well, it didn't. Unfortunately, it didn't. No. Um, but what I managed to do was um, from freedom. I actually, in the same year, became Youth MP for the Hutt Valley, representing the Honourable Trevor Muller, the yeah. former Education Minister, and I actually started the first Hutt Valley Youth Conference, and it was about connecting young people from every region across the Hutt Valley together to discuss some of the big issues, and taking those voices of young people to Parliament was a really special thing for me, um, and decided to go for that based on the experience I'd had with Freedom, and could actually talk directly about what it takes to help young people overcome big challenges. Yeah.
0: And again, was that kind of a natural evolution that you saw the stuff that you enjoyed from freedom and the the things that you were good at there and were able to apply them as as a youth MP? Or were there other kind of motivations for you to to move into that as well?
1: I think that was my biggest motivation, just knowing that I had been able to make a difference in in young people's lives. And then how do I take that to a whole new level, which is across the Hutt Valley? Um, I think that was really important.
0: Excellent. How long were you a youth MP for?
1: So it goes for the year. So that was okay. back in 2010, yeah, yeah. which is seven years ago now. Mm-hmm. Long time. <laughs> I feel old. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you're not as old as me, so don't, don't worry too much about
0: that. <laughs> Although uh, Noah's gone home.
1: Noah yeah, has sitting, gone home. Sitting
0: next to him, we both feel old. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs>
1: tell me about it.
0: <laughs> so in terms of, in terms of freedom, but in terms of being a youth MP as well, is obviously you're coming across a whole lot of different stories, a whole lot of different issues. What did you learn about yourself during those times? Like, in terms of kind of good things and maybe things that you were like, hey, this is maybe something I need to work on.
1: Yeah. Being quite young and naive at the start of that, it was was more about uh, myself voicing a lot of my own problems and challenges that I've been through and, and using that as a, as a mechanism to allowing other people to open up. Yeah. And about four, five, six sessions in, what I learned was that everyone has a story to tell and their story is just equally as powerful. Um, and, and how can I enable them to, to use their voice to inflict change too and create yeah. change? Yeah. And
0: did you kind of feel that that was... I mean, I've talked to people about around this kind of topic before about the sharing of stories and things hmm. and the concept of vulnerabilities come up reasonably frequently with it is that sometimes if you're in a if you're in a large group um, especially a large group of New Zealand males um, there is kind of a reticence to put ourselves forward and also and to, to really open up it's kind of a, oh yeah, should be should be right sort <laughs> of sort of attitude and um, did you, did you see that as well, is that you being vulnerable and open first kind of gave the, everyone else the space to kind of bring their stories in
1: as Yeah, well? definitely. I think it's all about setting the tempo as well and the atmosphere in the room. Um, you know, how, how we act in, in that moment is also going to set the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and people will feel very open uh, about their life and some of the issues and, and be very vulnerable. If they feel safe to do so. Yeah. Um, so what can you do in your power to make it safe? Yeah.
0: How do, like, speaking on that a little bit more practically, were there kind of things that you use to make the room feel more safe for people?
1: Um nothing I I used in particular, um apart from my own voice, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just being really upbeat, making it really safe, really cool safe. that it's it's okay to make mistakes is really yeah. important. Um, And just by being open about that and and using that to sort of open the discussion made a big difference.
0: Yeah, interesting. And was that kind of a a continuing theme through as you were the youth MP as well? Or were there different challenges around getting people to engage uh, with you and kind of share their stories and their viewpoints in that situation? Or did people kind of want to come forward? And
1: Yeah, people go, really wanted so. to come forward. I don't yeah. know if it was the youth MP uh, name at the time and being only 18. And, and yeah, I think it was really cool. And I think there's a bit of a prestigious factor about it for schools to be involved, thinking it's the first ever Hutt Valley Youth Conference. Um, that's kind of the objective there as well. What can I do to make this more prestigious and get everyone involved and make yeah. sure that schools actually showed up and, and brought participants along?
0: Yeah. Excellent. What kind of issues
1: were you discussing? Hmm um yeah looking at the more localized issues and understanding what young people thought were really prevalent in the community and really important um so one of those is around sexual health mental health um alcohol and drug abuse more particular um and i think a big one and this is one i actually took into youth parliament was around advertising the illegal drug trade to young new zealanders um we we can ban the use of of drugs in society um but yet we're not really doing anything to stop stores or anyone in the community actually advertising and making it appealing for young people. What can you do about that? So,
0: yeah, that's yeah, very true. Were there, I mean, young people have great ideas. Did you, did you come up with any fantastic ideas around that?
1: understood that everyone knew somebody who was doing or addicted to drugs, which yeah. was a huge thing. So, mm. you know, two degrees of separation... Myself being eighteen, every other young person from the age of fourteen to eighteen knew somebody who did drugs regularly, um, yeah. illegal drugs, of course. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think it was a bit of an eye opener to realise just how serious of an issue it was for our community.
0: Yeah, yeah. Tommy, I want to I want to pivot a little bit. Um, what was it? What was it like working uh, with Trevor Mallard at times?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, he he was really yeah. cool. He was really cool, really supportive, which was amazing. Mm. Um, we actually, I uh, did a bit of an internship after after uh, after high school, which was yeah. awesome. Um, working at Trevor Malad's office and, and helping out, um, getting a bit more of bit more of life experience, you could say, yeah, or political yeah. experience. I don't know yeah. if they're the same thing. <laughs> definitely debatable. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely debatable. Um, uh, but just had a, had you know a really good understanding about more young people across our region by doing that as well, mm. um, and focusing on issues like you know. Illegal highs and, and how do we get those off the shelves of local yeah. stores?
0: Yeah. Okay. What did uh, What did Trevor teach you about life in general?
1: I think it's not just Trevor, but also Youth Parliament. Um, we can put those two together. Mm. Is that you're never too young to take up an opportunity? Um, a lot of the time, I see young people just back down from audacious tasks because they just seem so out of their comfort zone um, and I think by him just you know saying yes to me to be the youth MP and it was tough competition um, being voted in for that made a big difference to my life just and you have the power to do stuff which is yeah,
0: cool yeah is that a is it a belief that you held beforehand I mean you'd already you'd already started up freedom at that yep. point
1: is I think it? it sort of amplified what I'd already done, right? It's, yeah. it's about taking something that was small scale a seed in my school um, and mm. taking that to a whole new level where you could make a big difference for so many.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean you're, you're a, a kind of guy who is into a lot of stuff and just <laughs> and from, from speaking with you, you just kind of j- jump into it at the moment. Well, uh, there's probably a bit more strategy than that, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> sometimes, but, <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes you get a
1: bit too excited and just go for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah.
0: But there, there are a lot of people out there that kind of mull things over for a very long time and hum and har about it and then maybe do it, but then maybe maybe don't do it because they think, oh, actually, that's that's way too far outside my comfort zone. Is that kind of concept or have you gone from being someone that has been a bit reticent about getting into it to being someone that's comfortable with just jumping out there? Or have you always been that comfortable person jumping in? It's a long winded question for a quite a a short answer.
1: (laughs) Um, I think uh, when I was super young, you know, as, as, as a child, yeah, you could definitely say that I would um, jump into things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's just been a natural thing. You know, I've okay. always been the person to just yeah. jump yeah. into opportunities to give them a shot. Um, but I did have a habit as, as, as a young person of starting something and then kind of giving up on it. And, okay. And that's something that I had to, you know, I had to go through some massive experiences in order to overcome that and, and learn from that too. Um, yeah. You know, it's great to start something, but it's another thing to see it through to the finish line, and what does that take? Um, a heck of a lot more effort.
0: Yeah, yeah, but in saying that, at least, you're, at least you're starting things with it as well. Yep. And giving giving things a go and following your, your curiosity <laughs> with things as well. Do you know why you enjoy that compared to someone else that, that maybe doesn't, that doesn't get in there and, and start things? Or is that not, something, that not something that you've particularly kind of thought about too much?
1: Not something I've thought about too yeah, much. It's been innate for me to just to just see an opportunity and just mm-hmm. jump at it or make it happen. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool.
0: And I want to I want to kind of talk a bit about the not seeing through things through to the end. What like initially what uh, stopped you seeing through? things through to the end was it because they got boring or because they got hard or a bit of bit of both a bit of both i think it
1: was a lack of passion you know you can always Uh, jump into things and you're not so passionate about them and and, um you you tend to give up so you know when i finished school even though i was doing an internship over at parliament i started a university degree in business and after three or four months decided to to drop out of it Mm -hmm. um because i wasn't so passionate about it yeah just stopped going to classes and and, and realized that it wasn't for me. Um, but looking back now, yeah, probably, may, maybe a good decision because of where I am. Um, but, you know, I learned a lot from after that experience. say, so, hey, look, if you're going to start something, if you're going to commit to it, commit. No half ass commitments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's,
0: there's an interesting, uh, almost kind of, dichotomy with that is that it's important to start things that you're curious about to find out, hey, is this something that I like? Is this something that I'm I'm passionate about? But actually calling stop on the ones that you're not is a really, really good thing. Mm -hmm. But also in in saying that, training yourself to go through some of the hard stuff to see things through to the end is also... Uh, It's it's also an an interesting point and I think often it's sometimes we're faced with situations where we have to weigh up those two as hey, I don't know if I'm going to love this but I'm definitely interested in it shall I jump in with kind of a thinking about an end point in mind?
1: Yeah, so I think for me just relating back to the experience of that first degree I think I did it more so to make my parents proud rather than myself proud. And, mm-hmm. and that was one of the reasons why I didn't enjoy it as much. Okay. I'd already made that preconceived idea right from the start that this isn't for me, I'm doing it for them. Um, that only took me so far, right? Um, yeah. Where I feel like if I did something for myself, like educational, jumped into politics, something I was mm-hmm. really passionate about at the time, um, I would have given a whole lot more effort to it.
0: Yeah. How did your parents respond when you... When you pulled out. Oh, man. Where do we
1: go with that? <laughs> um, yeah, I had a, you know, it was a pretty tough time, especially uh, my, my dad as well. He was really tough about it. Um, so I actually went up to Auckland for the remainder of that first year out of college and worked at my dad's company for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, before actually going back to uni the next the okay. following year yeah, and yeah. doing law and political science. Does yeah. that
0: kind of work as a bit of a redemption? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was just
1: redemption, you know, like have to do something like, oh, I don't want to get my ass kicked too much. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> no, nah, yeah. but he, he 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 came around, you know. He, I think when I started my, my second degree, he realized mm-hmm. um, that I was doing it for myself and that yeah. I was really committed to it. Cool. Um,
0: and why law and political science?
1: At the time... As a 19, 20-year-old, I thought it was um, a way to make a positive impact and a massive change in community, and I always dreamed of being somebody who could rewrite the welfare and education policies for this country and and what would that take to to put things right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was really passionate about that. Yeah,
0: cool. And getting into the the university system and studying law and political science, did did you retain that passion, and did you kind of get the whole way through that? definitely.
1: Yeah, so I definitely retained the passion um, and the interest, and I still have it to this day. Um, but in my my second year of university, I had some big health problems, um, which stopped me from, from taking it any further. And that was a really hard moment for me because I finally was doing well. I felt like I was kind of making people proud. And I get to this point where I'm faced with this massive challenge of adversity in my life and you know, this massive health scare. Um and just happening to, to drop everything. Mm. Um, yeah, it was it was a tough time.
0: Yeah. You, you mentioned there making everyone else proud. Mm. Were you, you proud of yourself
1: as well? I was. Yeah, I was. I think in my second year at university, you know, I was proud. I'd, even though I dropped out of one degree, I'd started another. I'd gone through the first year. Hadn't had the best results, but moving into the second year, I was I was nailing it. Yeah, and I started getting my first A's, which was incredible. Um, a real proud moment for me. Um, yeah,
0: cool, very cool. Tommy, can we have a bit of a chat about your health scare? Of course, if, we can. Uh, if you're alright with yeah. that. So that happened. This kind of second year of university, so your early twenties.
1: Yeah, at the time. Yeah. yeah. So when I was when I was twenty-one, um, yeah. one of the toughest years um, of my life. Um. actually, so 21, 22, and, you know, six months, uh, you know, when I, was, when I was 21, six months before this this moment in time in, in February when I had a, a massive health scare, I started getting uh, kind of seizure-like symptoms across the right side of my body but had no idea at the time there, was, there were seizures. Um, so I lose feeling to part of my body at the age of 21, And I'd always just blame that on being something like nerve damage. Um, And I'd go see the specialist and I never thought it'd be anything bigger than that. Um, And at the end of February in 2014, I believe, I think it was 2014, it's been a while now. I just had a a series of these sort of numbness motions across the right side of my body.
0: Yeah. Like the whole right side of
1: of my body, my arm and my leg would just sort of jitter and move a bit. Yeah. I had one of them and it only lasted a few seconds. I was like, whoa, what was that? And then I had a, a few more and this time in quick succession. Um, it was 10 o'clock at night and I was just finishing off an assignment um, that was that was due the next day, typical uni student.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done a few. Of them. Nah,
1: <laughs> totally, totally. And um, yeah, so I finally thought that maybe something's wrong with my health and packed up all my stuff and just started walking towards gate seven of the university and as I was exiting through the electronic doors opened up for me and I fell to the ground in that moment and just lost feeling to half of my body. Yeah. So
0: you were still aware of, of yourself and your surroundings at the time as well?
1: Yeah, so when I fell to the ground, I, I think I lost consciousness for a period of time, maybe a, a couple of minutes. But getting back up, I, I got my feeling back and I had no idea what had just happened. Um, so this will be the most dumbest decision I ever made on this night. I decided to, I decided to drive home. I had no kind of clue what had happened. I was very yeah. confused, but I drove home. Um, and when I got home at about yeah, 10.30, the room around me was just spinning so fast. like I'd, I'd never seen anything like it before. And at midnight, I was rushed through um, the emergency department of the Hutt hospital. Um, and I'd lost feeling to half my body at this stage. And it, it wasn't changing. It had been like this you know, throughout that night. And the next morning in the hospital, I was the first patient through a CT scan, and on the back end of that, while my right side of my face was drooping down a bit, the uh, doctors came in and they said, hey, look, um, we're really sorry, but your brain's bleeding, and we want you to prepare for the worst. Man, um, yeah, it was a scary moment.
0: Did you have other people there with you at the time?
1: I, I had my, my mum with me and, and my dad, but I was really reserved. I try to put up the brave front. I don't mm. like to let everyone else know when I'm sick. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard to admit that myself. And, yeah, so I, I was alone when the doctors came in and told me that, and I, I preferred it that way, to be honest, because um, mm. then I know how to sugarcoat it when my parents come in.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what was – what emotions were you feeling at the time? What what was going, going on in your – yeah, so bleeding.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I think just just hearing those words, you know, prepare for the worst. It's like a doctor telling you to prepare to die. And I think in that moment, there was definitely some thoughts that have stuck with me for the rest of my life. I'm happy to tell you about them if you like. Yeah,
0: you go for it, mate.
1: So one of those for me was just. You know, I, I take away from that moment the reminder to always give thanks of every single day that you have and to those people around you as well. Um, you, know, you know you're know you going to be born, you know you're going to die and you don't know when you're going to die or when you're going to leave the earth and just how do you want to leave your loved ones and that's thought stuck with me for the rest of my life now. So just remembering when you see your loved ones to always give thanks You know, for, for all the great things you have in your life and, and, and for them um, and your friends and whoever else really contributes immeasurably to your life. The second one there was, you know, I mentioned to you earlier, I dropped out of my first university degree. I'd started my second one. And all throughout life, I felt like I was the guy who would always start things, but never really see them to the finish line, never see them through. And I just felt like I had it made um, those closest to me really proud. And, and I thought I was finally making myself proud, but also those around me proud. Um, and I think, you know, the thought was there for me. Always make sure that that you're proud of who you are, um, and that you're doing your best to make those people that have contributed to your life proud of you too. Really important. And the third thing uh, that I learned in this moment was around making a big difference. You know, I'd started the, I'd started freedom at an early age. I felt like I'd had a taste of what it makes, uh, what what it means to really make a big difference for society and for people. Um, but I felt like there was a lot more I wanted to do with my life um, at that point. And so, you know, I, I learned in that moment what does it take to make a big difference and how important that was to me. They say
0: every, every cloud has a silver lining and, and they are pretty pretty big revelations to have at that point in time as well. And they were, I mean, they were... Obviously, you had treatment and it was successful. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. But they were kind of things that went through your head prior to that treatment that you thought, "Yeah, hey, these are these are actually what's important to me." in life. yeah, yeah. So
1: this was a year before I even got operated on. Okay. Um, yeah. So when I first was diagnosed with a with a brain bleed, it was relatively small. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the course of that year, um, I've had at least a seizure every single day for a year. Um, bedridden for a year, hospitalized on five occasions for for growth of the brain bleed and, and losing feeling to part of my body. Um and then the following year in, in January, that's what we decided to to uh operate. Mm. So um and 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 how we came to that decision um was sort of another twist and turn in life too. Yeah. Are you
0: happy to happy to jump into that? <laughs> yeah. Uh... So,
1: in the same year that I was diagnosed with a um, a brain bleed, um, my best friend, who was also my flatmate, um, was diagnosed with late stage leukemia cancer, and in September of that year, he passed away. And um, on the day of his his funeral, I look back now, and and I just remember. Uh, Again, it was just as scary as the first time I'd ever experienced, uh, uh, you know, numbness across the right side of my body, Um, which looking back now, I'm actually told by my surgeons that was a stroke. Um, So as I was actually um, putting one of the closest friends of my life, um, you know, um, into his his burial site, um, I I again lost feeling to the right side of my my body and um, had what they, they call a second stroke. And after that, um, going and visiting my neurosurgeons and um, then finding out that, you know, your brain bleed had grown considerably and that it was now classified as a vascular tumor called a hematoma and that I needed an immediate operation in order to save my life. Um, Really confronting. Really confronting. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah. It's
0: pretty full-on
1: really full-on um man crazy year i tell you, you learn learned so much yeah, different human now because of it
0: uh, yeah
1: it's difficult to
0: kind of find words to, to say anything after that but mm. thank you for for sharing that oh you're word. welcome it's uh, it's pretty pretty powerful um yeah so you you got to the point where basically it was a, a requirement to to have this this operation. Um, yeah. And up until that point, they'd just kind of been thinking, hey, what's going to happen? Is yeah, just- they,
1: they thought that the bleed would harden up yeah, and that it would sort of um, confine itself into a okay. very contained area. Um, but that wasn't the case for me. Like I said, I had con- times over that year where I was hospitalized because my brain bleed had grown a little bit. Mm. Um, but when we went back in November, it was a significant increase. It had doubled in size from a month earlier. Um, and the decision there was was that I needed operate o- operating, um, but they wanted to wait at least another month because um, what that would allow is the initial, where it's just bled again, to so sort of harden up. Okay. And that yeah. would make it easier to dissect. Um, yeah, and we had scheduled brain surgery for January.
0: Yeah. How hard was it to wait once you knew what was going to happen?
1: When I first found out, it was the first time I... Literally publicly cried, like in front of my parents and things. I'm sorry, second time I'd cried in in total. Like, um, it's crazy, you have a seizure every day and you only break down in tears twice. But um, from that time in September till, sorry, September, October, somewhere around there, till the following January, um, I hadn't had any symptoms in that period in, in time. And I hadn't had any seizures for two months before my op either. And I was like, Wow, really strange. And actually, spent a lot of time with my friends. Um, went away for for New Year's that year as well um, with my friends, which was really cool and it meant a lot. Um, but to come back from that, um, yeah, I got a call on January the fifth, the following year, to to say that you know in a week's time you're going to be having brain surgery, and that's when it hit me again.
0: Yeah. So what had you what had you been doing kind of in that year? It well, was since you since you initially found out that you had the brain bleed up until the end of the year.
1: So I had to drop out of all of my university papers I've been working on in the, you know, first semester of my second year. Then in my second semester of that year, and even though I wasn't allowed to drive and I would have, you know, see just symptoms every single day. Um, It's crazy now to think about it. I actually uh, decided to enroll in a couple of papers in my second semester while diagnosed with a brain tumour. And I remember um, I had a a reader writer for my exams and I actually got like amazing grades for somebody who could never go to a class. Um, And I think that comes down to willpower and how much you want something, you know, if you if you're committed to it and you've got the willpower um, and you'll see it through. And yeah, I got good grades and I hadn't been to a class, which was crazy. Um, So really grateful. I didn't give up on on those two papers. And I think it kept me busy and realizing that it wasn't the end and you can just keep going.
0: Yeah. Cool. Were you, you said you had a reader, writer? Were you having problems?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Loss of motor control. Permanent double vision, so I still have double vision, but only really close to my eyes. So yeah. reading a book's an issue, but driving a car and everything else is fine, which is a bit of a miracle in itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's good. That? Yeah, uh, I mean there
0: are there are workarounds yeah. and things. Totally, technology is getting so good now as well. <laughs> it is. is. I you can just talk massive. to my phone, right, and it does <laughs> yeah. everything for
1: me anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, you'll be able to talk to your car. So I know, right? right? Do everything I got, for you. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. um, so mate. Uh, went in for the for the operation, yeah. and I'm assuming that it was ex- it was successful. Just looking at
1: your head. Today, yeah. So. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah. It was, um, you know, going into it was really tough. Um, didn't know what to expect. I was I was quite upbeat and confident about it. Um, but very private about it at the same time, yeah. Wouldn't, wasn't really sharing my thoughts. Was that
0: that upbeat and confidence, was that kind of a front that you put up around other people, or is that was how you felt internally as I well? I think
1: I was just prepared for, for anything. You know, I was literally prepared for the worst, and, and I know what the worst was, um, which was, you know, to, to leave this earth. Um, so just being prepared for that and, and just trying to make the most of this last opportunity to be around those you love and just really focus on what you're about to go through to to see it through. It's really important. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I, I had a heck of a lot of willpower. You know, I wanted to get out the other end. I wanted to make the differences and I wanted to make people proud and I wanted to give thanks and, and do some great things that i learned along the journey.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the operation, you're in hospital for a, for a bit afterwards.
1: Yeah. I mean, so leading into the operation, those closest to me were told that it would take about four hours. Um, and I, it wasn't until a bit after my operation that, you know, I was told my brain surgery took nine hours of open brain surgery, uh, 11 and a half hours all up. Um, and my parents, you know, it was the hardest, they say time in their life or one of the hardest times in their life was was waiting for that and just having no clue what was happening being told it was four hours and wanting after eight hours where i am um was really tough and come out of that to to hear from my neurosurgeon that my brain tumor was again doubled in size from just three months earlier and and that they found a separate sort of blood clot lesion thing in the brain too that they also had to remove um yeah, it was really tough, but just really grateful for all of their work. Um, yeah, they did an exceptional job.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah they're, they're pretty good down
1: there. They can do incredible they, things they now. They can,
0: they can, yeah. Um, what was the recovery like afterwards?
1: Yeah, wow. So I remember just waking up after the operation, and it was hard to talk initially. Um, my vision was all skewed and had a big tube come out of my brain into the cylinder thing that would just churn away excess blood. Um and then going into the recovery area for the next couple of weeks. It was just like being a, a toddler, you know, like learning how to walk again and talk again. And walking took a lot of effort. You know, you'd take your first step and you'd fall over and, you know, you'd try two days later and you'd take two or three steps and you know, after two weeks, you kind of clap. You are like, "Woo!" Made it to the shower. You know, I am <laughs> yeah. you know, my own Manny and I am independent. Yeah. Um, but it, it took a, it took months and months. And started off with a walker and small exercises and routine physio to get myself going again.
0: In, in terms of that that process, obviously that's that's a massive challenge physically as well. Yeah, and you are grateful in that period that you are you able to kind of go through this that it wasn't another option that that happened in surgery or pre-surgery but there's got to be some big challenges that you faced along the way in terms of that rehabilitation
1: as well. Yeah one of them was was cognitive fatigue so after the surgery I had severe cognitive fatigue so for the first sort of um, six months it was hard to Talk for more than 15-10 minutes at a time, um, and then after that, things got a bit better. Um, but still, suffer with a bit of cognitive fatigue today, um, along with the double vision. Um, but just learn how to control it and, and do the best with it as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. At the at the time, do you remember how you approached those challenges or how you kind of worked worked through them? Did you have kind of any mental strategies that you used? Other than um, just pacing yourself?
1: Yeah, I think it was a a matter of realizing I'm, like you mentioned, I'm, I'm a bit of a go getter, especially for my junior years, you know, just actioning stuff and getting things done. And it was literally just about reevaluating life and just taking things slow, one day at a time, not trying to do too much. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: And was that easy for you to do?
1: I think I think it was because after the brain surgery, like it was, it was so sore, and you know you're on medications, like twenty plus tablets a day, for the first six months and, and leading up to it too. So, yeah,
0: okay. yeah. So it, it took you sort of a year or so for decent recovery. <laughs> Obviously,
1: yeah. Um, it took me about six months. Six months. After okay. six months, I yeah. kind of wanted to stop feeling sorry for myself and go out there and get back into yeah. the world and do yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, so after eight months after recovery, I was looking at job opportunities yeah. again. Yeah. I thought, well, I don't want to go back to uni just yet. I want to go and get a bit more experience yeah. and then just jump back into it when it's you know yeah. uh, a bit of time.
0: With the, with the job opportunities that you were looking at, those three things that those three revelations that you'd had how did you use them to kind of shape where you went from there
1: yeah so after about eight months after surgery and just having everyone around me and so close um to me all the time i I simply just wanted to get away um so i actually found myself moving to australia to work in a recruitment organization one to challenge myself i would never done anything like it before um and yeah, I think mainly just to get away from everyone and just be by myself. Um, and in that process, unfortunately, yeah, I did forget about some of the things that really meant a lot to me. Um, but lucky I found those things now again.
0: Yeah, yeah. What um, was your kind of a catalyst that caused you to find them again? Did you kind of get to a yeah. point in your life where you think actually, hey, something's not right here?
1: Yeah, so when I moved to Australia and just being really driven, um, I earned a whole lot of money really quickly working in a, re- in a recruitment company. It was a real niche recruitment agency as well, So, um, and they were a UK-based firm that had set up in Australia, and I earned a bit of money through them as well, which was really good. Um, and after doing that, I realized that money, after six or seven months, realized that money is not everything, and don't forget about your values. And of course, I didn't really like Australia, New Zealand for the win. Um, <laughs> so, moved back to New Zealand and worked at a social enterprise recruitment company. After um, after about eight or nine months, and their sole focus um, was, well, their ethos was, people matter. Therefore, do good. And they gave a portion of their product, uh, portion of their profits, to create water wells in places like Cambodia and third world countries. Um, quite a beautiful. Sort of uh, culture to the organisation, something I could be proud to work at. Um, but there was a flip side to it too. So when I started in that in that second recruitment company, um, one of their clients, one of their clients, sorry, was um, a tobacco company based in New Zealand, and that was really confronting for me. And it was totally against my ethics and my morals and who I was. And after about nine months there, I realised I just couldn't do it any longer. Um, yeah. So two different industries: one in the in the white collar sector over in Australia, and then the blue collar sector here in New Zealand. Um, and I think during that time, I just realised a lot of things about the recruitment industry that that weren't too hot, um, and that I wanted to make a difference as well, um, and operate differently too. Yeah. So yeah, applying those now, which is good.
0: Excellent. So it was kind of a it was something that you had to mull over. For a for a while with that, in terms of or getting getting to the point where you, uh, kind of really saw that hey this this has uh, been okay for a short period of time, but it, long term it doesn't align with my values. It's not particularly yeah, it's not lighting me up. It's not, it's
1: it not, wasn't it's lighting something. me up, but what really kept me going yeah. as well, and, and something I should have actually mentioned earlier, um, while I was. Um, before I got operated on for that year period where I was quite, uh, you know, I, I learned a few lessons like making a difference. Um, during that year, before my surgery, I'd started something called the Knowledge Bank, which is about providing educational resources and opportunities to vulnerable children. And I'd been continuing this all the way through. And so even though I didn't feel uh, the accomplishments from work, I got them on my own personal endeavours. Um, from that also got a civics award from the Hutt City Council for my, for my efforts there too, which was great. Um yeah, so something I was really proud of, and I think having that alongside my work um, gave me a lot of purpose, Yeah, which was cool. Okay.
0: Mm. Potentially more so than the work that you were doing as well.
1: Yeah, more so yeah. than the work yeah. I was doing. I mean, like I said, the the morals of, of helping a tobacco company didn't go well with me at yeah. all. I, I hated that, and I didn't really have a choice in that. Um, but the reward was actually working with, young people that will work in a place like a tobacco factory um and who just need to put bread and, and butter on the table for their kids mm. and and what does it take to inspire them to come to work every day and you could take a tobacco company you could work in a place like a distribution sector yep. for a place like coca-cola or a warehousing uh company or whatever yep. it was in the blue collar sector and it's hard for a lot of young people on minimum wage to be motivated to go to work mm. um but what can you do to make their life a bit better? And I was really inspired by that. Yeah. And I remember I met a a, a young guy I'd, I'd placed into um, the Capital Coast District Health Board, and he was working in the distribution sector again, warehousing, helping the the inwards goods uh, uh, goods stock get into the hospital. You know, and he'd travel from from Whanui and Mata to Porerua um, to earn just over the minimum wage while he had four kids. And for me, it's just like wow, what what people would actually do for a job and and what the needs are. I just learned that firsthand. Mm -hmm. Um, And grateful I could be in a position to help people like him get a job.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you would have seen kind of uh, a lot of different motivations for for people. Definitely. Yeah. And that's the the guy that you've just talked about as well. Obviously, that's that's a massive driver. Were there some other kind of big kind of common motivations that came through for you that you that you saw
1: yeah but I think that I think that is single-handedly one of the biggest you know um just seeing people that are vulnerable in their circumstances um who have kids or have basic needs they need to meet in order to just stay alive and stay afloat and and not sort of um trickle down further into the you know below the poverty line and and what does it take to help them stay out of that situation Um, um, that was my biggest driver for working there, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. And did that get you to kind of start asking yourself more questions as well? Because I mean, you you just said there, what did it take to help them get out mm. of of that situation? Um, is that kind of something that has that also catalysed the shift for you? Is that as as you started to think about? That stuff a little bit more. Hey, this is where I want to. This is where I want to go. Totally. I'm seeing. I'm seeing these Mm. guys. I'm asking myself more questions around their moral side of things.
1: Again, I think it was just like I look back now and I see that as a stepping stone, right? Um, It was like another experience of being able to help people and make a difference in their life, and just always dreaming bigger. What more can I do? What more can I do? Just asking myself that every single day. Like I've been given the second chance for a reason and I really want to make the most of it.
0: Yeah. When you ask yourself, what more can I do? Do you write stuff down or do you just think it? Or I kind of think and then I action yeah. it, right? Um, yeah.
1: So if I'm, I'm working with a, a candidate and place him into a role, what more can I do? What can I do to make his life better? What's going to make an absolute difference in his life? Um, asking things like, okay, how is he going to get to work? How is that going to affect his financial situation? Um, is it worth him doing a three-hour shift? Um, and, and just asking questions to really help young people along their journey um, but it was really a catalyst to where I am now
0: yeah um, yeah and is that kind of a is that kind of a model that you apply in your own life as well as that what more can I do yep
1: totally yeah. every step of the way so wherever I, I you know those people that are closest to me um, even those people that I just made if, if it's something that I can easily do that will make a difference in their life I'm gonna do it um, and if it takes less than two minutes, I'm going to do it on the spot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very cool.
0: Very cool. Um, and again, is is that something that's that's easy for you to do? That's
1: yeah. Or really you get easy. tired
0: of it at times? No, no.
1: No, I don't. I love it. Um, I think right now, helping people is definitely the biggest component of my existence.
0: Yeah. Should we talk a little bit, Tommy, about how you help people now? What totally. You, what you do? Yeah.
1: So it's actually it segues really well from where I was. It does. It so does. Um, <laughs> while I was working in recruitment, I actually sat down with uh, one of my greatest inspirations now, um, and have the privilege of of seeing him every week. Um, I sat down with a former Young New Zealander of the Year. His name was Guy Ryan, and happened to be the CEO of Inspiring Stories. And I actually sat down with him to talk to him about. The knowledge bank and about how education is not just an individual or communities, but the response. Uh, uh, sorry, not just an individual or family, but it's the community's responsibility. And what I was doing to help achieve that, and distributing books, etc., and creating a list of vulnerable children that we could offer further assistance to. And during that discussion, we also talked about my experience in business development and and how I learned a lot about getting clients on board um, with what we do through recruitment and on. On the same day, and just after meeting with him in a cafe, there he is walking out the door now giving me a wave. (laughs) Um, He offered me a job as the head of business development and partnerships for the trust. And he said to me, you know, I can't, you know, I probably can't pay you the same, um, but I can damn promise you that what you do, you're going to feel so fulfilled and it's going to be completely in line with, with what you love doing and and it will help amplify the difference you can make for for young people and, and we shared a, a common passion there and a common interest which was to inspire and build the capabilities of young new zealanders um and what would it take to inspire and build the capabilities of every young New Zealander was the question um so being a part of that now is a beautiful thing I never looked back awesome you said yes
0: to him on the spot
1: i said i said yes to him that night actually yeah. so i got home and it was really crazy um he kind of, ish offered me this job. Um, I wasn't really sure where it had kind of gone to, but you know, I came home and there was just a job offer in my email box, email inbox saying, "Hey, if you want to jump on board, sign away." And yeah. the next day, I signed and sent it back and resigned from my job and just changed everything. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you've been having fun helping people. I have indeed.
1: Since I have indeed. And not just always directly helping young people on the ground, um, but also just creating the financial assistance and keeping this trust sustainable in terms of being able to make a bigger impact and a bigger difference. Um, And helping a lot of corporates realise the difference that they can make too, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think often it's just opening people's eyes to the different possibilities out there as well is that uh, we get very get our blinkers on and kind of get very sort of tunnel vision almost about sort of what we're what we're trying to achieve that we sometimes miss out on all of this other cool stuff that we can have get involved or involved with what we're doing or get involved with around us that just aligns with the aligns with the Yeah same and there's so
1: much there. out there as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um and, and everyone, you know, it's you can actually do something you love doing. Um and if you're not getting that out of your, your day job, then that's okay. There's other places in society you can get that from to make you feel mm. very fulfilled. Mm. And um, you gave
0: a perfect example of it before with the Knowledge Bank. And
1: yeah, totally. So to what can you do? If you're passionate about something, just don't hold back, you know? Mm. Um, really important lesson there.
0: Do you also want to have a little bit of a chat about uh, your new recruitment agency?
1: Yeah, definitely. So... When I came to Inspiring Stories, which is a year ago now, so many a years into the role, I'm absolutely loving it and um, created some great relationships for the trust and met with a whole lot of people in the corporate arena as well. And um, just coming from a recruitment background, I looked at our programs and, you know, came to the realization we'd had 6,000 alumni, that's young people that have come through a program of ours, whether that's a future leaders program or live the dream business accelerator program or have come along to Festival for the Future, 6,000 young people. I thought to myself, what would it take to help them really unleash their potential and to do something they truly love? Um, And looking at the trust, how can we become more financially resilient and sustainable? So taking those ideas created a recruitment agency along with with guy um, and we're co-founders now of it called millennials which is helping businesses become more purpose-driven and helping them find the best millennial talent on the market so it's exciting space to be in and we, we launched a couple of months ago um very passively and very quietly um we've done our first few placements which is great um and i think one of the big challenges coming up is about how do we take this the service we've created and our teachings and our learnings and how do we take that to the market and, and challenge them. Yeah. And I think one of the most beautiful things about it is being one of New Zealand's, if, if not New Zealand's only, I'm, I'm not too sure, um, not-for-profit recruitment agency, which is great. So everything that we make in profit, we reinvest to help more young people through programs through the Inspiring Stories Trust. And yeah, I'm Grateful to be a part of something so beautiful as that
0: yeah yeah and again kind of big challenges creating something new (laughs) just out of interest when you are faced with a challenge what do you feel do you get excited
1: yeah i think um i get excited sometimes (laughs) if (laughs) i'm to be honest um there is challenges that i do shy away from and um Maybe it's like um, from a client wanting a particular candidate for a particular thing. And I don't think maybe it's not so much shying away, but it's more like educating them on a better way forward as well. Um, yeah. I think that's more of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Ed- educating people on what we can do different.
0: Tommy, I think we've, we've got a, a lot of your story there, which is great. <laughs> and I... I definitely want to have a a catch up with you again just to talk kind of concepts and things, but I've got a couple of questions that I like to ask everyone towards the end of the the chat. The first is, can you tell me about a time that you failed and
1: what you learned from it? Yeah, I think it was, um, and I think back then I thought it was a failure. So that would have been, you know, um, dropping out of my first degree. Uh, behind my parents back and pretending I was going for the next six months. <laughs> that was definitely a failed moment. Um, what I learned from that is um, that commitment is really important. So now when I when I say I'm going to do something, I just follow it through. I don't want to be that guy who just starts and stops, you know. Um, sort of mentioned that as well, backing up for my life experience after my operation. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, what was the last
0: uncomfortable thing you did and how did you get through it?
1: Yeah, it would have been when I was um, – and I mentioned that, you know, it was it was a no-brainer to take this role. Um, mm-hmm. One of the uncomfortable things about it was the financial security of jumping into a role. Um, so, again, what made that easy was just following your heart and intuition because they already know what you want to become. Um, yeah, rather than being sort of – stuck in a position where i wasn't fully fulfilled um but i was making good money um, Yeah. so you know you give up your company car you give up your, your salary or whatever and you sort of jump ship um, not that the salary was was really bad here or anything like that um but just the potential for future earnings wasn't as great um, yeah but i guess now i realize it's what you make of it mm. and it's not even about the money it's just about the difference you can make for young people
0: cool yeah and i mean i think there's there's been all those studies that uh, after a certain level of income, actually money doesn't make to totally. Me, means yeah. money doesn't make you any happier at all.
1: I mean, before I started this this job at Inspiring Stories, I already own a, own a house, which is amazing. Mm. I had my own car. I had a lot of things that other young people don't have, and just from sheer grit and determination and working really hard in, in different roles in the recruitment business and and making it happen was mm. was awesome. Um, so for me now money doesn't matter so much um leaving a legacy that i'm super proud of now that yeah that gets me excited
0: what kind of legacy do you want to leave
1: um yeah i think i just want to be part of something big so even when i when i eventually leave this earth um the organization can live on and, and what difference can I make for this organization or the many other organizations that I work with that will again make a difference. And I think I'm part of growing that legacy for this country, which is really cool. Yeah,
0: that is very cool. What's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do? And why is that uncomfortable for you?
1: Next uncomfortable thing I'm going to do. Oh, what am I going to do next? <laughs> Um, I think it is back to the millennials thing and taking that over to market. You know, we plan to do that launch in the next three months. Um, like I said, we'll be doing it passively, but actively competing against some of the biggest recruitment companies out there in the millennial space. That's a challenge, um, but really excited about being in a, being in a place of, you know, we feel uncomfortable. I think yeah. that's where the magic happens.
0: Very cool. But, um, Couple more questions for you, but I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time to sit Hi, down man. and have a you chat are so with welcome. me. You're so welcome. Thank you for being so open as well and and so vulnerable uh, with it. too. it's yeah, it's very empowering to to hear your story and the stuff Cheers, that you've man. been through. Um, and hopefully, it, it inspires other people to kind of open up and, and share some of that vulnerability as well. Uh, the first question for you is probably pretty easy. Um, if People kind of want to follow along with the stuff that you're doing, want to have a little bit of a a look, um, want to support things for you. Where should they go? What should they do?
1: Yeah, they want to get involved with what we're doing. Um, I work for the Inspiring Stories Trust, so the best way to contact me is www.inspiringstories.org.nz and you can catch me there or through Facebook or or Instagram or Twitter, it's Tommy's World, T-O-M-M-I-E-S-W-O-R-L-D, and I'd love to have a chat with you.
0: Cool. I'll throw some links into the notes for the show with that <laughs> as well. Hey, mate, um, this next one's a little bit more meta, this question. Do you have any advice or life lessons or interesting facts to leave
1: us, yeah. us today? Yeah. um I think it's more in the essence of a quote, actually, or, or just something to, to, to ponder and think about. Um, they say that the average Kiwi male is going to live to 82, and females are a little bit luckier. It's a little bit higher than that, <laughs> lucky for them. Um, but if you had to think about being at the end of your life and you're handed a pen and your paper, and you're told to write on one page what your legacy will be, I just challenge you to, to think about you know, what you could include in that letter if today was your last day. And to think if every person in this planet um, gave a little bit of their letter or just a little bit of their legacy was bigger than the self-indulgence of, of who they are, if it was about making a difference for somebody else or something greater than you, and that was your legacy. Um, you know, with, with hundreds of letters together, you would write messages with thousands. You could write chapters with millions. We could write a story of the difference we've made for the planet. But if every person in the planet, gave a little bit of their legacy to making a difference, Then collectively we came right to history. And I think that's really cool to think about.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great thought to finish my thing, mate. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today.
1: No worries, man. You're welcome.
0: Wow. There you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I had a great time chatting with Tommy. I, I took a whole heap out of that conversation Um, As always, I will be writing uh, some of my takeaway points and posting that up on on Medium, but also on the blog part of the website um, in the near future as well. So if you want to come back and have a look at that in a couple of days time, that should be sitting there for you all. Now, the thing that I want to leave you with today is Tommy's encouragement and his challenge About what legacy that you want to leave. So go away and have a think about that. About how your legacy can help people. And make sure to comment as well. To get a conversation going around this. And hopefully we can all help each other out. In regards to the legacy that we want to leave. Now if you want to support the show. The easiest ways to do that are. To like the episode post, to make sure that you share it out with all your friends, to subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and to leave a comment and a review. As always, the incredible theme music is brought to you by my super talented younger brother, Jeremy Desmond. And thank you all for getting uncomfortable with me and Tommy today.